Uhuru. Uhuru means freedom. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show. We broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3 WBPULP, St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. That's uhuru, U-H-U-R-U, solidarity.podbean.com. My name is Jamie Simpson. We have a great show today on reparations in action. Every week on reparations in action, we discuss some of the most pressing issues of these times of a colonial uh, capitalist system that is in profound crisis. We sum up events as white people in solidarity with the African revolution through the eyes of the African working class and the political theory of African internationalism. Under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. We believe reparations is a question that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to begin by saluting Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP in St. Petersburg and the nonprofit that guides all of its work, the African People's Education and Defense Fund, or APEDF as it is known. The APEDF's mission statement is to address the grave disparities faced by the African or Black community in economic development, uh, human rights, health, health care, and education. So we really salute the African People's Education and Defense Fund. And I want to also begin by saluting my co-host, who is also uh, our engineer on Reparations in Action. And he is the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, uh, my co-host, Jesse Neville. Uhuru, and welcome back, Jesse. Uhuru, Jamie, good to be here. Really, really thrilled to be on this show with you today. You know, it's, it's, it's so precious that we have this platform to be able to discuss uh, reparations in this time. And we're particularly honored today, Jesse, because we're able to interview T'Charwa Masimba. Uh, T'Charwa is a member of the African People's Socialist Party, as well as the Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint Project in St. Louis, Missouri. The Black Power Blueprint was initiated by the Uhuru Movement in the wake of the murder of Mike Brown on August 9th, 2014, and the subsequent African uprisings against the colonial uh, oppression in the form of a police murder. Chairman Omalia Chatella then traveled to Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Missouri outside of St. Louis, to build the movement there and later, Deputy Chair Ona Zene Yeshitela spent over a year in Ferguson leading up to the Visionary Black Power Blueprint Project, which has created an Uhuru House Community Center, outdoor venue space, and marketplace, community garden, housing, and so much more. In the context of a struggle to advance the political and economic power in the hands of the African working class. T'Charwa plays a key role in that work. Uhuru and welcome to Reparations in Action, T'Charwa Masimba. Uhuru. Are... Uh, Uhuru. Yeah, so, thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're so thrilled that you could join us today. You, now, you are the Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint, uh, which, as I said, is under the leadership of Deputy Chair Onazane Yeshitela. T'Charwa, could you talk to us a bit about the work of the Black Power Blueprint and why it has been so significant to the African working class community on the north side of St. Louis. Yeah, again, I just wanna uh, thank you, uh, Jamie and uh, Jesse Neville, the Hero Solidarity Movement um, for inviting me here 
And yeah, as you said, this incredible program was initiated by um, owner Zanea Satella, who is president of the African People's Education and Defense Fund. Um, and she really got on the ground and carried out the vision of uh, Omalia Satella, uh, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. And um, so this program has been significant, as you said. Uh, we came here, um, myself, a little bit later after the murder of Mike Brown. Um, and though I was born and raised here, I uh, began to volunteer with uh, the African People's Education and Defense Fund shortly after the murder of Mike Brown and the uprising that we saw in Ferguson. And uh, nobody, uh, you know, we would see later that nobody built anything, uh, and especially in the interest of the most oppressed sector of the African community, the African working class. But APEDF and the Black Power Blueprint uh, came here uh, we uh, purchased a 9,000 or so square foot building that had been vacant for a decade or more. Um, and across the street from that were two other vacant buildings, uh, vacant in, uh, for two decades, um, a whole a health hazard. The whole you know, floors uh, had crashed into the, you know, in the building. So you could see straight through to the basement. And uh, you know, so first we renovated the 9,000 square foot building, which became the incredible Uhura House. Uh, which houses, uh, you know, community um, offices for community organizations, and it has a beautiful community center and rental space on the first floor. And this is right in the heart of the most oppressed uh, sector of the African community, uh, where you know, so-called streetwalkers, uh, you know, it's the only really way to real way to make a living for many of the women, uh, and the drug economy that was imposed on this community by the U.S. government is the only real economy that we see. Uh, for African people. And uh, so we renovated this incredible building and it brought uh, such vitality and life to this community. We had incredible uh, conventions, conferences, uh, weekly uh, community meetings where we give meals and we sum up uh, the political and uh, economic conditions of the community, win the community, bring them into the space. People get to talk it out, they get to organize. It was an incredible, incredible project by itself. But we didn't stop that. We continued to get more donations, you know, 10, 20, 50 dollars at a time uh, from people in the community and throughout the world. And we uh, purchased those additional two buildings on a total of four lots uh, from the LRA Land Reutilization Authority here in St. Louis. And uh, we developed it into a beautiful outdoor market space and raised a, a beautiful, uh, winning, uh, victorious 50 foot tall, 25 by 15 foot uh, long and wide uh, African flag, which has uh, you know, really inspired this community. Uh, many of whom don't, many people don't know who Marcus Garvey is, but they have learned somehow that this red, back, black and green flag represents the interests of African people. And they see um, a, a reclaiming of uh, economic and cultural life happening in this community. So it has transformed this community. And we've gone on right now, we're demolishing two additional buildings that will be utilized for community uh, event space. We uh, ha uh, have also demolished a building that will be an outdoor basketball court. And then today, as we speak, we just begun, uh, that is the uh, company, the contractors that we hired, you know, African owned company, uh, will begin the renovation of a fourplex house that will uh, house uh, Africans getting home from prison. Um, that in a commercial kitchen and bakery cafe, which will house a workforce program for those in the, who occupy the housing. So it's been an incredible and incredibly uplifting project. 
um, that is not only winning people to uh, recapture an economy, but allows the community to organize to fight for its own interests uh, against all of the policies that are responsible for this um, um, economic embargo that has been placed on the African community. Wow. The, the, the work you just described is so incredibly significant to Charwa. And it's so, as, as you've indicated, it's so inspiring to uh, hear about this coming out of, out of the African working class. And, and as I believe you mentioned, you, you grew up in this community. You're from the North St. Louis African working class community. And St. Louis, if uh, you know, anyone has been paying attention to the Black Power Blueprint web shows and uh, you know, the re reporting on, on this show knows that St. Louis is notorious for its Del Mar divide. That is the street uh, separating the wealth of the white community from the imposed impoverishment of the African community, which is at the heart of everything we're talking about here. Could you sum up those conditions faced by the African uh, community, by African people in North St. Louis that the Black Power Blueprint is addressing? Yeah, that gets right to the heart of the uh, reparations question. You have this uh, street called Del Mar Boulevard, um, and it is the separating line or the, the obvious uh, separating line between the uh, wealth uh, in the white community and the uh, poverty in the African community. So on one side of Delmar Boulevard, you see high rise buildings, uh, cafes, you know, uh, just beautifully street line, uh, tree lined streets uh, and all kinds of businesses, commerce and culture. Uh, you see all of the major hospitals, the uh, largest park in the uh, city and I believe it's uh, the largest park in the country. Um, and, you know, just a wealth of wealth and uh, prosperity. And then immediately on the other side of the street, you see the black majority black community where um, instead of having uh, housing prices that average 300 something thousand dollars, they average about $78,000, which is probably skewed as well. Many are probably less uh, value less than that. Um, but the contrast is significant. And the fact is that there is no coincidence that uh, these two realities exist. The fact is that all of the resources, um, everything produced uh, by African people are, are siphoned away from us in a thousand different ways and transported over to the other side of Delmore. And that's really the relationship that exists for African people all around the world. Uh, we do um, orientations for people who wanna volunteer for the Black Power Blueprint. And we watch a video where you see this train uh, in the video uh, in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And uh, it, you know, we're told by the forces that we organize there that that train runs 24 hours a day, taking the resources out of Africa, shipping it to the coast and eventually to Europe and Japan and other predominantly imperialist uh, powers that uh, suck the, both the human and material resources out of Africa. But the same thing happens in North St. Louis and in Detroit and in uh, Minneapolis and Kenosha, that the resources in a thousand different ways are shipped from the African community to uh, the uh, white community. And they live a life of uh, prosperity relative to the rest of the people on the planet as a result of that. So for example, uh, the St. Louis area, and this is something you know, I discovered as a result of being uh, part of the Black Power Blueprint. You know, we don't know these things when we grow up. So St. the St. Louis area has about 90 municipalities uh, in and around St. Louis County uh, going out of St. Louis City. So as a kid, you know, 
uh, we would ride through these municipalities or as teenagers just learning to drive. Uh, we might ride two blocks and then, you know, it's, oh man, we're in so-and-so municipality, right? Uh, slow down. You know, if you go one mile over the speed limit, people will tell you this as you drive, uh, they'll pull you over. You know, and then two, you go another mile or two miles, sometimes a few blocks, you're in another municipality. And these 90 or so municipalities were created because white people wanted to have their own little fiefdoms uh, to break away from black communities so that they can have their own little police stations and uh, you know, uh, schools or whatnot. But the biggest thing is that they uh, were able to fund these communities, these little fiefdoms uh, by harassing, ticketing, jailing black people. So some of the municipalities like 80 or some, 80 something percent or so of uh, all of the revenue uh, that go to some of these municipalities come from uh, fees and fines as a result of ticketing black people for going one mile over the speed limit, maybe being too poor to afford car insurance or whatnot. And it's a whole economy where a whole bureaucracy uh, is, and uh, you know, private gain, privatized corporations that can provide services like camera, you know, cam stoplight, cameras and the stoplights to further exploit black people. So, I mean, there are a million examples that you can uh, readily find uh, in which African people uh, are crushed. You know, everything that we create is uh, taken and turned over to the white world. And then the police are brought in as a, a military fo force to ensure uh, that uh, we remain compliant to this social system. Wow. Uhuru. Uhuru to Charwa. This, this reality is so very stark. And I, I, I feel, I find myself saying that a lot in this period. You know, it's it's frustrating that this stuff is is still happening that you're describing about the the municipal, um, you know, chicanery, the the oppression going on for profit. That uh, if I'm not mistaken, St. Louis was exposed. Ferguson was exposed for that right after Mike Brown, and allegedly they cleaned it up. And here it's it's going on, you know, under under slightly different window dressing, just like police murders are going on rampantly, lynchings of African people are going on rampantly. You know, you mentioned Kenosha. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that you're reminding us that this is not happening in a vacuum. This is happening in the context of, of massive resistance and massive oppression of African people and gentrification, right? That uh, the Black Power Blueprint has been described as a struggle to push back against gentrification. And it is doing that mightily. You've spoken about the parasitic real estate developers uh, like um, like Paul McGee, and, and but, but before I get that, I, I, I want to mention that the Black Power Blueprint has been outspoken in opposition to the National Geo uh, Spatial Intelligence Agency, and, and, and we'll circle back around to Paul McGee, but could, could you speak to that question of the role that the National Geo Spatial uh, Intelligence Agency, or NGA, uh, that is being built in the African community of North St. Louis, because I, I believe that that agency is going to have a lot uh, of connection with everything that you're talking about. So can, can you tell us what the NGA is and its significance to the Black Power Blueprint? Yeah, the Black Power Blueprint is a real contest uh, to replace this parasitic economy that we find in the NGA, which is an acronym for National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. It is a international spy agency that use mapping, uses mapping technology to send drones in the air to uh, plot out and uh, bomb the uh, 
uh, homes and livelihood and, uh, of people all over the oppressed people all over the planet to take their resources. And the Black Power Blueprint is saying that um, no way to the NGA, we will replace this parasitic um, uh, military economy with a genuine economy, uh, genuinely designed to bring economic development and vitality to the African community. So, you know, the geospatial intelligence kind of has two, two histories, so to speak, that's really significant to the African community. First, the uh, first, um, you know, uh, white uh, US colonizers to uh, occupy this, uh, this, this indigenous territory, previously indigenous territory, uh, were Lewis and Clark. You know, we're told in history class that they were explorers, but uh, in fact, they were both officers of the US military. Uh, under Thomas Jefferson that had, you know, recently began taking more and more uh, land from the indigenous people, slaughtering them and bringing more enslaved African people into this part of the world. And so uh, they were sent here, Lewis and Clark were sent to this part of the world uh, to, um, to do on a reconnaissance mission. You know, and a reconnaissance mission is when you, you know, you map out territory so that the military that comes behind you can know uh, who they are up against as they attempt to take more land from the people who currently occupy it. And uh, they used enslaved Africans in the process. So uh, this, um, and they created a uh, fortress, you know, and that fortress uh, was created right outside what would become the city of St. Louis. And eventually was moved uh, to uh, closer to St. Louis on, on a street called Arsenal, where the existing National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is today. So uh, right now the US uh, has decided to expand the NGA. And uh, they pushed out a uh, hundred or so African families utilizing eminent domain to force people to sell their homes or to just take their homes. Um, and then they eventually uh, took a thousand or so acres uh, from an African community, you know, starved of any economy already, a thousand acres to dedicate to this geospatial intelligence agency. Um, and then they try to sell it to the African community saying that it will bring jobs, but it won't bring jobs for us. It'll bring jobs for uh, highly skilled white people and the uh, offshoot entrepreneurial ventures that they can create to, you know, to provide various different kinds of services to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So it's a horrific agency. Its mission is uh, one that we cannot uh, possibly get uh, unite with. Uh, it is an oppressive kind of instrument of white power that perfects the use of drone strikes to murder innocent children, women, et cetera. So that's one aspect of it. Um, and then the other aspect of it is that in St. Louis, people are becoming more aware of, of this thing called the Team Four Plan, which was essentially a plan that was written and discovered uh, in the 70s, early 70s, uh, that essentially said that St. Louis should be triaged into three different portions. And the African community, although it didn't state it explicitly, it was obviously uh, obvious referral to the African community, uh, should essentially be starved of any kind of resources. Um, and, and, uh, and it should be allowed to just decay. It was stated that it can't be saved. It should just be allowed to decay, bring in police, trash, and that's about it. You know, and then at such time as uh, the property, enough property can be banked and held in such an entity as the Land Reutilization Authority, then uh, uh, when they have enough pro property, they can then begin to turn over that property to what they call large scale development, meaning white developers. Mm -hmm. And so um, this was uh, the 
Team Four plan was actually preceded by a plan by the RAND Corporation, which is a counterinsurgency think tank. You know, think tank designed to figure out how the U.S. can uh, continue to oppress people who are resisting against uh, oppression. And so uh, the, the RAND Corporation did a study comparing St. Louis City to San Jose, uh, which is, you know, the home of Silicon Valley. And uh, Silicon Valley was the model city because it had an economy that was built around military spending. Uh, and the population was uh, largely white, young, highly mobile, highly educated, uh, you know, adaptable to uh, new needs for skills and, uh, and, and education that would, be, would result from this military economy. And so St. Louis was this black city, this uh, potential hotbed for resistance. Um, um, and they wanted to figure out how to flush out the African community from St. Louis so that they could deconcentrate us so that you won't have these large populations of black people uh, who are resisting oppression. And so uh, we were just allowed to, I mean, the economy was starved for decades. And then uh, the plan was um, to replace that starved economy once black people began to leave the city and large amounts of property were in decay and turned over to these entities like the LRA. Now you can bring in a military-based uh, economy uh, that will bring in white people to replace this African economy. And then the problem of black resistance will be solved. Yeah, that's wow. what they thought. But we have the Black Power Blueprint here. And the and Black Power Blueprint uh, will fight uh, to uh, build an actual economy that will contend with this parasitic economy uh, built around uh, US drone strikes and uh, murder of oppressed people all over the planet. We'll bring uh, vitality, life. We wanna rebuild, reinvigorate the culture where you know we've seen the likes of Chuck Berry, uh, um, Tina Turner, Miles Davis, uh, Red Fox, you know, just this incredible cultural history and an incredible history of resistance uh, that is uh, prevalent in the history of Black St. Louis. We want to reinvigorate that, revitalize that, and the Black Power Blueprint uh, will utilize, uh, will build an economy that will allow uh, Black St. Louis to thrive again and to push out this colonial parasitic economy. Wow. I, I just can't think of, of another nonprofit doing this kind of advanced work that, that's so relevant to, to, to all the problems you mentioned. And, and I, I want to ask you this other question that I alluded to at the beginning. And please, you know, uh, feel free to say I already addressed that. But the, the Black Power Blueprint, as, as you've been describing it, as it's been described, is a struggle to push back against this uh, really important question of gentrification that's happening in, in St. Louis, it's happening here in St. It's happening all over the, the country. You've often, uh, you know, and, and you summed up a lot of this about the, the question of uh, parasitic real estate developers and, and, and the way that the, the there's an economic embargo essentially against the black community that, that uh, as much development uh, as needs to happen, it's not happening. And uh, so I was just wondering if, if you wanted to say anything else about parasitic real estate developers, specifically like Paul McKee, and others who, um, you know, whether you call them large real estate developers that, that are gobbling up all this property, creating like a monopoly on the north side of uh, the cities of the city and, and using it, I think you described this, is it called, uh, the, the policy is called to quote unquote, let it rot. 
right, it, it, with respect to their approach to the north side of St. Louis. Can you elaborate on that horrific sounding policy of let it rot? Yeah, that's important. Then that's a good that's a good way to characterize it. We've characterized it this way before. Uh, the policy uh, being imposed on the African community, where you just let it die, to uh, incentivize black people to leave, to push black people out, mm -hmm. um, and to take our poverty elsewhere. So um, you have had uh, the U.S. government participate in this, and you have private developers who also participate in this process. Um, and Paul McKee is one of them, you know, this, uh, I guess he's a billionaire who has uh, purchased 64 or so properties uh, from the Land Reutilization Authority. Um, and then what he's done with those properties, he has uh, let them rot, you know, so he would, you know, this, this guy with all this money, he bought these properties and then he would sit on them and not do anything to them intentionally. He wouldn't cut the grass, uh, he won't board up the buildings. He uh, just allows uh, the properties to um, just sit in the worst possible condition with the intention of uh, discouraging people from moving into that area and from encouraging people to move out, for Black people to get out of that community, move out the way, just buy it up and let it become a, a huge uh, 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 nesting ground for you know, decay and uh, potentially violence. You know. So he's done that intentionally. And uh, he uh, eventually got into this uh, kind of a, a inter-capitalist struggle uh, because the NGA, uh, when it, it was uh, understood that it would come, needed that property. So uh, they ended up uh, buying the properties, much of the property from McKee, as I understand, at a profit. And then now they can become the new uh, big developer, big boss in town, you know. But you have these developers like that. They want to uh, privatize the airport. Um, they want, and then they've uh, they've led a whole campaign that has um, criminalized the African community. So one of some of the things that these developers, in conjunction with the uh, white ruling class government, have done is they've uh, put forth legislation to reduce the number of wards in St. Louis from 28 wards to 14. Uh, figuring that if they have less wars, they have less people that they can, they have to buy off. Um, and then those who run for office have to swin, spend twice as much money running for office and are more susceptible to um, um, the campaign finances, you know, campaign contributions of uh, developers. So they've done that. They've also uh, fought to uh, reduce, uh, to remove the residency requirements. So if you want to work in the city of St. Louis, for the city of St. Louis, uh, in the past, you've had to live in the city of St. Louis, uh, but they pushed legislation first at the, uh, uh, the city local level, then at the state level to allow uh, people who do not live in St. Louis to work in St. Louis. Why? Because they want more white police officers and more police officers. They want to attract more police officers so that they can um, uh, push the African community out, uh, repress us, uh, cover over the contradictions that are re a result from having no economy, so that they can then make it comfortable for white developers to then come in and uh, take our communities. So they've done that. They've attempted to merge St. Louis City with St. Louis County as a way to um, create a larger tax base uh, from which to draw money and then also to consolidate the power of uh, you know, the, the white developers and the representatives and government who, who represent them. 
you know, so they've uh, just led this whole campaign. They brought in uh, federal troops uh, into the black communities and created uh, this whole um, uh, uh, consolidated kind of plan to bring all kinds of different police forces and uh, um, prosecutorial forces into the black community to begin to just lock us up in mass to contribute to white development. So it's an insidious uh, parasitic process, you know, and African people have been the victims of this process uh, for 400 years in this country, 600 years in total. Um, and the Black Power Blueprint is an active uh, on the ground struggle to contend uh, with that whole political and economic uh, system of parasitism and to bring a life, economic, political, and cultural life back to the Black community. Uh, that is so Im impressive, comrade. I, I really appreciate how many times you use the word vitality. I, I see that as, as really integral to this uh, pushing back against this let it rot colonial festering that they constantly bring into the Black community. How, if people want to get in touch with you and want to support the Black Power Blueprint to Charwell Simba, how can they do that? If you prefer a phone call, you can call us at 314-380-8016, um, extension 2. Could you repeat that number? 314-380-8016, extension 2. Or you can reach us online at blackpowerblueprint.org. Blackpowerblueprint.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Black Power Blueprint. Fantastic. Tacharwa Masimba is the Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint. Tacharwa, thank you so much for joining us on Reparations in Action today. We'll take a quick break and be right back. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tacharwa. Thank you so much. Reparations in Action here on Black Power 96.3 WBPULP in St. Petersburg. And you can listen to us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. We just wrapped a great interview with Tacharwa Masimba from the uh, Black Power Blueprint. Uh, Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, and our, my co host, Uhuru. So that was fantastic. And uh, yeah. Uh, we really salute to Charwa Masimba. Hope that he can come back and, and join us for another discussion. They're so important, you know, to have those kinds of discussions in this period. And we, we want to turn, Jesse, now to a continuation of a series we began on our program last week 
on the history of colonial violence by Europe in Africa and the African struggle for reparations from European colonial powers. So last week, we had discussed the brutal genocidal slaughter of Africans in Namibia by Germany in the early 1900s, a legacy of bloodshed and mass murder often prescribed to the margins of history, while Nazi persecution of European Jews nearly a half a century later is elevated to an unparalleled degree of historical infamy. So today we examine another equally violent and horrific legacy of colonial rape, murder, torture, and genocide, often deliberately overlooked by white history books and the general European historical narrative. So we are looking at the history of British imperialism in East Africa, specifically in Kenya in the 1950s. And we will be discussing, you know, in horrific detail sometimes why Britain owes reparations to African people. And we really wanted to make a disclaimer before we begin this section. Uh, we've, we've done our best to take off some of the worst edges of it, but there, this does involve some graphic content. There's just no way of getting around that. So if there are any children listening, you may want to use your discretion with this section. So I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Jesse Neville, to begin uh, sharing this article. Uhuru. Uhuru, Jamie. Well, first of all, um, are you able to hear me? I'm yes. Not... Yes. Okay, I, thank you, Jesse. I would like to uh, salute you, Jamie, for uh, hosting this program and, and uh, really want to thank Tacharo Masimba. That was actually a brilliant interview. That was that was incredible. Um, I definitely plan to go back and, and listen to that again, uh, just to soak in all of the um, all of the brilliant analysis that uh, that Tacharo brought to that discussion. Just really salute the leadership of Tacharo Masimba and the Black Power Blueprint, as well as Deputy Chair Onazanea Shatella, who leads up the entire uh, project in St. Louis. And of course, uh, Chairman Amali Shatella, our leadership in the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, the founder and leader of the Uhuru Movement, the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, and appreciate the opportunity to have this program every week um, here on Black Power 96 to really talk to other white people who might be listening, uh, either to the radio station or to the podcast or watching on our Facebook page, uh, white people who are looking for a way to take a principled stand in solidarity with the African struggle, with the struggle that's happening all throughout this country right now where African people are righteously rising up in opposition to endless police murder and mass incarceration and conditions that amount to nothing less than genocide. And I think it's important that we're having this discussion because the question of where white people fit into this and what should white people be doing and what is the correct and principled relationship for white people to have to this struggle is something that is in the news. It's raging right now. Uh, we, we're not going to talk about this article today, but I did see something in the Los Angeles Times that I thought you would find interesting, Jamie. Uh, the headline was, white people have gentrified Black Lives Matter. It's a problem. Wow. It's just referring to um, the un unbridled participation of millions of white people in these demonstrations that are taking place and all of the contradictions that have arisen um, based on the fact that white people are not, you know, are not in motion under the leadership of the African working class. Of course, that's not what the article says, but mm -hmm. that's what they're talking about. And so, so this is, that's why this show is so important. So we can make this call to white people 
you know, it's not saying stay in your lane, shut up and sit down. This is not your place to have to say anything about it. Um, it's saying there is a place for us to take a stand, but it has to be done in a principled way under the leadership, under the strategy, um, and through the understandings of the African working class. So just wanted to say that, Jamie, and I would like to quote from this article because we want to build the Uhura Solidarity Movement in Britain. We want to build in Germany. We want to build all throughout the United States. And part of our work, I also want to salute Penny Hess, by the way, the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, who's our usual co-host um, and isn't able to be with us today. But what made me think of her is that so much of the work that Penny has done under the leadership of the Uhura movement for the last 44 years to build principled white solidarity with black power has been to expose the often unbearably gruesome and horrendous history of violence carried out by white people by colonialism against African people. That, that is yeah. part of our work. That is part of our responsibility is to face this dead on. So, um, so in, in order to forward the strategy of building throughout Europe, throughout the UK, throughout the white world at large, uh, we wanted to look at every week another example of the struggle for reparations from Europe for the crimes of colonialism against African people. In mm -hmm. 2016, Al Jazeera published an article called We Are the Mau Mau, Kenyans Share Stories of Torture. The article begins by saying, it's December 1952, Naomi Nzuila Kimweli, her husband Kimweli Mbituka Kilatia, and their three children are on a bus returning to their hometown to celebrate Christmas in what is today central Kenya. Life is good. Kimweli works at the Department of Public Works, and Naomi is five months pregnant with their fourth child. But then soldiers stop the coach and force everybody off. Kenya was then a colony of the United Kingdom, and the soldiers were commanded by a British officer. Naomi and Kimweli refer to him as Luvai, which in their Kamba language means ruthless person. The soldiers separate the men from the women and children and haul the passengers to a detention camp. When we arrived, we found other people being tortured. We were asked how many oaths we had taken. I said no to anything about taking an oath, Naomi says softly. I was blindfolded. I could hear my children crying, calling me mummy, mummy. I never saw them again. Now 87, Naomi wears a flowery dress and a colorful headscarf. Her eyes are sad and her face angry as she recounts horrendous sexual torture and violence that was carried out against her by the British officers. Naomi woke up sometime later in Nairobi's King George Hospital, today the Kenyatta National Hospital, to learn that the assault had caused her to miscarry. In the meantime, her husband, Kimweli, now 91, suffered his own torment. When we were taken to that camp, we were asked, you must tell us how many oaths you have taken because you are also a Mau Mau, he explains. Then he says he was pushed to the ground, ordered to straighten his legs and trampled on slowly. Pulling up the hems of his trousers, he reveals scars he says are from wounds inflicted on him that day. A few years earlier, and the article proceeds to describe uh, in very graphic detail how he was castrated and sexually tortured by the British. A few years earlier, a local movement had started revolting against the British colonial administration, which had ruled the area since 1895. The movement mainly comprised Kukuyu people, Kenya's largest native tribe, many of whom had been pushed off their fertile lands 
in central Kenya by the European settlers. Along with other tribes, the Kikuyus had been forced to live in ethnic reserves that were too small for them, sounds like concentration camp to me, Jamie, and required to possess a special permit to move around the country. Many ended up as cheap labor on white-owned farms in what had now become known as the White Highlands. Many of their European masters were young, upper-class British officers who had resettled there after World War I. Others had arrived from South Africa and British-administered Rhodesia. Most enjoyed a life of luxury on their large, servant-staffed estates. By 1948, growing unrest on the farms had alerted the colonial government to the existence of the so-called Mau Mau, which it subsequently banned in 1950. Two years later, violence erupted as rebels began engaging in acts of resistance to neo-colonialism. The rebels called themselves the Kenya Land and Freedom Army. Their aim was to end colonial rule. It was the British who called them the Mau Mau, a term whose origins and meaning is still being discussed today. The newly appointed governor, Sir Evelyn Baring, declared a state of emergency in the colony. It was October 1952, and the war against the Mau Mau had officially begun. The colonial authorities struck swiftly and intending to thwart the rebellion at its very beginning, arrested around 180 people, among them, Jomo Kenyatta, the leader of the Kenyan African Union, a predominantly Kikuyu political organization. But the actual leaders of the guerrillas, as they refer to the, the, uh, the guerrillas who were the revolutionaries in Kenya at that time, who like Dedan Kimati came from the most radical wing of the Kenyan African Union, had already escaped into the forests from where they would continue their fight. All right, I'll, I'll pick it up here, Jesse. And, and uh, I, I think it's important that everyone, uh, that we understand uh, that, that when it, it talks about uh, guerrillas, that th those are the revolutionaries. Th th those are uh, the, the Kenya Land and Freedom uh, Army and, uh, or the Mau Mau, as, as they're known, were freedom fighters, anti-colonial freedom fighters. And Dedan uh, Kamati is a revolutionary hero upheld by this movement, by the African People's Socialist Party and, and Uhuru movement. And, and we, we salute these forces and we unite, you know, with um, their characterization by Malcolm X, who upheld the Kenya Land and Freedom Army as uh, uh, an emblem of, of freedom fighters and, and a way that the oppression of African people should be handled here in the U.S. even. He, he said, uh, Jesse, do you recall the quote of, of Malcolm yeah, X said, talking yeah, about the, can, can, can you share that? He said, we need the Mau Mau in Harlem mm -hmm. and Mississippi. And, and yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was while he was talking about the brutalization of Fannie Lou Hamer, mm -hmm. um, a, a grassroots African worker, activist, uh, a, a giant in, in the world of, of African liberation who, who was brutalized by US colonial police. So I just, just wanted to say that so we have a, a political context for what we're talking about here. Even yeah. though this is happening in Kenya in the 1950s, it's very relevant to what's happening right here, right now. So we continue. Back then, while the regime's soldiers fought the guerrillas, the colonial government also conducted a campaign of mass arrests. Almost anybody even slightly suspected of belonging to the Mau Mau was arrested and taken to a de de detention camp or prison where they were, were then interrogated and often tortured and abused. Many women, like Naomi, were raped with glass bottles. Many men, like Kimwaili, were castrated with pliers. 
Few prisoners were brought before a court of law. They were classified according to how dangerous they were perceived to be. And they were continually moved from one camp or prison to another until they were considered safe to be on a to be sent to a reserve. As the war dragged on, the administration started relocating a large part of the native population into what it dubbed, quote, protected villages, end quote. These were surrounded by barbed wire, guarded by soldiers, and resembled, resembled the detention camps in everything but name. The, quote, villages also served the purpose of cutting off the local support to the guerrillas. Uh, conditions in both the camps and villages were harsh. So uh, violent sickness and hunger were rife. Uh, Jesse, we're it says here that up to 1.5 million people, including almost all the Kikiyu population, were forcibly kept either in camps or in villages. And, and you had mentioned how much that reminds you of the, the, the camps and villages sound like concentration camps. To my mind, they also sound like prisons for African people here in the US. So we go on. Uh, the, the rebellion proved to be much more difficult to deal with than the British had anticipated. The colonial government brought in 20,000 extra soldiers and used the British Royal Air Force to try to strike the rebels in the forests. In October 1956, the Mau Mau leader, Dedan Kamathi, was shot and captured, effectively signaling the end of the fighting in the bush. Kamathi was tried and sentenced to death. He was hanged in February the following year. Finally, in 1960, the state of emergency was lifted and the colonial regime filed uh, um, the colonial regime filed the uprising away as just another savage conflict conducted mostly between Africans. The rebellion, however, had helped to accelerate the transition of power and had been happening in, that had been happening uh, in other European colonies. Yes, Jesse. So the, the rebellion had, had helped to accelerate the transition of power as had been happening in other colonial colonies. Three years later in 1963, Kenya was declared independent. Its first government was led by Jomo Kenyatta by then on, a fr on friendly terms with the UK. The land which did not remain in British hands passed on to Kenyans linked with Kenyatta's government. The new masters had little interest in bringing to light the wrongs committed either, by either side during the uprising or in recognizing the role played by the Mau Mau fighters. The Kenyan government did not remove the law banning the Mau Mau movement, and so the veterans remained barred from meeting or organizing themselves into any kind of association. Many official documents from the time of the uprising were nowhere to be found. It seemed the British government had actually tried to delete that part of its imperial past. Things suddenly changed in 2003. That is the year that the government of the newly elected Kenyan uh, President Mwai Kabaki lifted the law that banned the Mau Mau. The veterans immediately began gathering uh, to share their stories, and soon the Mau Mau War Veterans Association was formed. Together with the Kenya Human Rights Commission, or KHRC, the veterans started working towards the possibility of bringing a lawsuit against the United Kingdom. The KHRC said it had documented 40 cases of sexual abuse, castration, and illegal detention. From those cases, the commission was finally able to present five Mau Mau veterans as claimants in mid-2009. Wow, that, that is a, a very small number of people to, to bring as, as claimants after, after all that, that injustice. So we're, we're reading this, uh, this, this article from uh, Al Jazeera 
about uh, the uh, horrific torture of uh, Africans in the Kenya land and Freedom Army, Army or the Mau Mau. And um, Jesse, I just want to confirm that that your audio is okay. We did have a little hookup, uh, hiccup there. Uhuru, Jamie, uh, yes, I apologize for the technical difficulties, but um, I'm here. Fantastic. So I, I think that one of the things that I just want to make clear in, in, in our summation of this is uh, the, the way in which the, the colonial regime seemed to target the organizational structures of the colonized African working class of the Mau Mau, uh, th this um, injunction against the existence of the Mau Mau prevented, it, it was saying, the, the veterans from having any kind of association, from even acknowledging that they existed. And I, I think that's significant, the way that, that colonialism targets organization, that organization is so key to uh, resistance and, and to making reparations in any kind of uh, reconciliation or um, restitution. These, these people have been brutalized. Their, their children taken away from them, their ability to, to ever have children again or to live a normal life. So it's, it, it becomes a, a very significant question, not only for, for justice for these individuals, but what kind of future the, the continent of Africa, African people, and, and indeed humanity itself is going to experience. Um, so I, I just think that that, that question of, of the assault on the organizational structures of the colonized African working class is significant, Jesse. Did you want to um, say anything about that or just continue reading the article? Uhura, Jamie. Well, I know we are going to um, have to close out in just a minute or so, um, but I do want to appreciate that we, we looked at this article and just the fact that this was kept out of history for so many years until the survivors of the counterinsurgency, the genocidal repression against the African people in Kenya by the British came forward and struggled for, uh, for hearings and for a trial. And of course the trial never happened, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was brought out. Uh, the, the historical lying by omission uh, was shattered by the voice of the, the colonized African. And as a consequence, the British Foreign Secretary, they, they ended up coming out and announcing that Britain would, was gonna pay $31 million in costs to uh, compensate 5,228 veterans represented by that British law firm. But you know that came out to about 3,000 pounds per African. And that, honestly, that is an insult. And that, that is, <laughs> hard to fathom that for the, you know, you look at the torch, you look at all the resources, you look at the fact that the entire political economy of, of Britain and of the white world, as Chairman Amalia Chatella has explained, rests upon the foundation of torture and enslavement and theft of resources and uh, of African people. And for them to say, oh, sorry, uh, here's 3,000 pounds per person um, is an absolute affront so yeah. Britain, Britain, absolutely, they owe reparations. They owe everything they've got, just like we, all white people do, all of white society does, owes reparations, not just for the atrocities in Kenya, but for all of the imperialist extraction of resources and genocidal terror and violence against Africans and others that continues to this day. This is it not does. dead history. This is yeah. ongoing. That's why in the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, we say Uhuru, we say the slogan of the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, the Swahili word for freedom that Chairman Omali Shetela and the African People's Socialist Party adopted as its 
as this rallying cry, uh, we say that every single day, even as white people to remind each other that that our freedom as white people has historically come at the expense of the denial of Uhuru to African people worldwide. And that, that genuine freedom for all people is only possible when African people are free. So this is the struggle continues and we have a responsibility uh, to, and an interest to work for reparations to African people, to fight for reparations and white people throughout Britain, you know, I wanna urge you to go to uhurusolidarity.org and uh, take a look at that, become a member button in the top right. Yeah, Jesse, I really appreciate that and just deeply unite with it. I, I think that was so well said. Uh, and it, it's so important to internalize that, that truth that this is not dead history. And even if it were, it occurs to me, even if this was simply something the European colonial powers had done in the past and it didn't exist now, they would still urgently owe reparations to yeah. a, mu a much greater sum than the paltry, what, $3,000 per person who was, you know, just yeah. tortured? No, yeah. no, yeah. that doesn't fly in a court of law, let alone the court of history, where these yeah. things are still happening to human beings, you know, yeah. daily. Every single day, this is happening. So the the urgency, I, I don't think we can overstate it. I, I think we, we, we've got to keep hammering that home. So I, I wanted to ask you, Jesse, I know we've only got about six minutes left, and this has been a fantastic show. Do you have any time to speak? Because we wanted to get to the question of this third segment uh, that I think we're kind of hinting at here, which is the ongoing oppression, the ongoing colonialism, the moneyed sector of capitalism, the ruling class, that, that we have a responsibility to haunt with the demand for reparations. And I know there's this article uh, that we wanted to sum up discussing, right. um, you know, everything that's going on right now with the pandemic and, um, you know, class struggle. So did, did you want to just speak to that before we wrap up the show? Oh, here, Jamie. Yeah, um, we don't really have time to go into this article, but basically the point was to show that the, the hoarding of resources in the hands of the capitalist ruling class uh, at a time when African people colonized people's conditions of uh, colonial poverty and uh, just, just absolute hell in every aspect of life is deepening and intensifying every single day. And that the call to the white population by the African People's Socialist Party, by the Uhuru movement, is we have to fight back too. We have to fight back against our own ruling class. We have to engage in real struggle with our own ruling class, not struggle to try to compete with them or become one with them or gain a greater sh access of shares uh, of stolen loot from African people. We gotta fight uh, for reparations to African people for our own interests, uh, for our own survival on this planet earth because uh, there has to be revolutionary transformation if the earth is even going to survive. So that is why white people are being called upon by the Uhura movement to march under the leadership of the African working class on October 17th in at least six cities, now possibly seven uh, cities throughout the United States um, for the Mar National March for Reparations to African People. You can get more information about that at uhurusolidarity.org slash march. We will be marching in St. Petersburg, Florida, in St. Louis, Missouri, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in Portland, Oregon, and San Diego, California, and in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and possibly in Detroit, Michigan, maybe even in Berlin, we'll see. Um, we have some possibilities in those places as well. Fantastic. 
Um, I, I, I really appreciate that, uh, Jesse Neville. I really appreciate you. I want to I want to salute you uh, for today's show, for your ongoing work as uh, producer, engineer, and co-host of, of Reparations in Action. Um, your, your contributions are, are fantastic. We want to salute Tacharwa Masimba, the yes, director yes. of economic development for the Black Power Blueprint and an incredible member of the African People's Socialist Party. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We want to salute the African People's Education and Defense Fund, or APEDF, and Black Power 96.3 WBPULP St. Petersburg for letting us have this show every Tuesday at noon. And uh, just wanted to do our housekeeping announcements as Jesse was putting out. The March for Reparations is happening on October 17th, 2020 in cities across the United States. Get involved if, if you if you're interested. Uh, check out a new video. You can do that at uhurusolidarity.org/march. That's uhurusolidarity.org/march. And also, Omali taught me on Sundays at 8 a.m. You don't want to miss out on Chairman Omalia Shatella on his Facebook page and on youtube.com slash the burning spear. That's 8 a.m. on Sundays. That's Eastern time. And you can also listen to this podcast, the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday, at 12 p.m. Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP St. Petersburg, Florida. And now available, you can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Uhuru. Uhuru.